Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. I've had the privilege and pleasure of speaking with many wonderful scholars over the years for Ideas Roadshow, but there's a special place in my heart for John Elliott. To me, this internationally renowned historian of Spain and Catalonia represents nothing less than the exemplar of what the academic experience should be all about. Meticulously rigorous investigation, driven by a candid, all-consuming passion to understand what is going on, followed by a consistently diligent effort to transmit that knowledge as clearly and insightfully as possible. You hardly have to be a history lover to be inspired by John's singular approach to research and scholarship. But if you are, you're in for a very special treat indeed. So let me just begin by asking the obvious question that you addressed in your book uh, in the first chapter, which is, why Spain? Your interest in Spain started off in, in, a, in almost an accidental way when, you, when as an undergraduate, you, you took a trip to Spain. Uh, but let me, let me ask you to expand a little bit on that, but, but, but keep one question in mind, which is, did you, uh, did you choose Spain or did, did Spain choose you? I think on the whole it's fair to say that Spain chose me. Uh, I, um, I went to Spain for the first time uh, in the summer of 1950, the long vacation from Cambridge, my first long vacation as a Cambridge undergraduate. And I'd seen an advertisement uh, in the university newspaper, Varsity, uh, which said that there was this old uh, army truck that was going to Spain with a group of people and there were one or two places still. And so I decided to sign up. And we went off uh, in June and July uh, to Spain and went for six weeks right round the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, like others in the group, I think I was overwhelmed by a country which was totally new to me. Of course, you know, I'd been brought up during the war, hadn't traveled abroad. And uh, to see this fantastic country with the parched landscape of Castile in the middle of the very hot summer, 
and go around and see these extraordinary cities like Toledo and Segovia and Salamanca, which are incredibly beautiful. And then to go to the Prado Museum, uh, and I'm very interested in paintings, always have been, uh, had a response to art, I suppose, and was overwhelmed particularly by the paintings of Velázquez. And all those things absolutely gripped me. And when I came back to uh, Cambridge, and I started, I was reading European history, particularly in British history, and I was very interested in one of the portraits by Velázquez uh, in the Prado, this fantastic uh, equestrian portrait of the Count Duke of Olivares, right. who was uh, the first minister and the favorite of Philip IV of Spain from 1621 until he fell from power in 1643. The last 20 years of Spain's greatness uh, as the dominant European power in the, the Europe of the 16th and early 17th centuries. And I thought I'd like to know more about this man. And I found really very little and rather conventional stuff in the, in the textbooks on European history. So I thought to myself, you know, if ever I become a professional historian, I had no knowledge of whether I was going to be or not at that stage, that I'd like to know more about this man and his policies and so on. So that's really how it all started. So I was, I was gripped both by a country and I think by an individual. Right. And you had talked about um, progressively getting more and more interested as your career obviously developed in Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, th there was this whole question of centralization versus decentralization or, or at least autonomy to various different regions and, and, and all the rest of that. But I, I want to go back a little bit before we get into that. I want to go back to, to, to the origins, to this trip. First of all, when I read this, here, here you are, you're an undergraduate, you just finished your first year and there's, mm -hmm. there's an opportunity to go bombing around the Iberian Peninsula in an army truck. Yeah. I, what is that? Because when I was an undergraduate, I never had an opportunity to go bombing around the Iberian Peninsula in an army. Well, what, were you supposed to be doing anything? Or were you, were you just, what? what, what? Well, this, was, this was our vacation. And uh, so who was, in, who was driving the truck? And what, what? Another undergraduate. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was just yeah, a group was, of people uh, group, that wanted to go together? A group of undergraduates. And he happened to have a, have a truck. And, and was he a Hispanophile or a no, Hispanist or anything? No, he, he just was, thought this fact, would be a... I think he was Dutch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, he was a student. Right. And so this was just a... So how many of, how many of you were there? It must have been 10 or 11. And you hadn't been to Spain before this? No. This was, this was your, your, mm. your first opportunity. That's right. Mm. And, and, and I guess, so you're, you're remarkably astute at not being drawn into these grand synthesis of, uh, of, of history or, or anything else. I've tried to prod you on a couple of occasions and, and you have uh, cleverly resisted. Um, but I'm going to try again with some, with some counterfactual argument because I could understand here you are, you're an undergraduate, you think, oh, Spain is an interesting place because you've had this great experience. Uh, you later on, it wasn't that trip, right? It was later on that you saw this portrait of the Count Duke. It was, well, it, I, I it saw was, it for the first time on well, that trip. You did see it, yes, because of course oh. I was looking at all the Velasquez. Right, right, of course. But whether, whether it really sees me at that moment particularly, I, I think it probably did, but uh, you know, I sort of buried it somewhere and then. Right. And I went back later on. Okay. But you also talked about being tempted, perhaps, by doing British history. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you recognized there were tactical reasons and so forth. The landscape was, was very crowded in, in this particular area. Yeah. It was much more wide open for us. But I could imagine that you, would, uh, you, you might have uh, 
you might have had an interest peaked in Spain. You went on this trip. You saw a couple things, mm -hmm. and and then eventually you drift in, you drift into into something else: medieval history, Renaissance history, mm -hmm. Italian mm -hmm. history, whatever. But that didn't. That's not what happened. Which is my uh, which is really my sense of whether whether you chose Spain, whether it was just completely serendipity, mm -hmm. or whether in fact there was a particular resonance with with the culture, the attitudes, the mm -hmm. proclivities. The parallels, perhaps you talked about uh, aspects of uh, socioeconomic parallels and political parallels yeah. between 1640 Spain and, 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 and what you were living through. Mm -hmm. So was, is there a real deep connection between you and Spain that you think was waiting to be explored that even had you not gone on this particular trip, you would have eventually wound up? See, here I am asking you to indulge in counterfactuals. <laughs> but <laughs> or or or. Was it just one of these things where had you taken a trip to, to Italy at the time or had you taken a trip to Venezuela or had you taken a, taken a trip to Japan, you might, your career might have gone off in a completely different way? Obviously, you can't answer the question completely, but what do you think? Deep well, I think down? All, all these elements you mentioned come into play and came into play. Uh, I did go to Italy the, next, the, the following year, and although I was you know, enormously impressed by Italian Renaissance buildings and paintings, it didn't, for some reason, have the same impact on me uh, as, as Spain. I don't know if I'd been to Italy first. It's conceivable, I suppose, that it might have been the other way around. And so many uh, Italian specialists, really, they don't react to Spain. You know, they feel it's inferior in some way. Hmm. So there's, there's, there's a possibility that there was a, a chance in, in all that. But it may be something about the austerity of the country uh, gripped me. Uh, I suppose I'm, I'm naturally a fairly austere person in some ways, in mm. my tastes, etc. And um, uh, I think that set me off. And then the fact that, you know, this was a country uh, just emerging from the Civil War, is desperately impoverished, a very repressive regime, uh, a country that British historians were refusing to visit, those who had sort of remembered and lived through the Spanish Civil War, so that in a sense it was an open field. And I was always attracted particularly by the, the early modern period, the 16th, 17th centuries of European history. So all those elements I think combined and suggested, you know, here's a wonderful field. It's not being worked on much by Anglo-American historians. And as I found later, it wasn't being seriously worked on by many Spanish historians because they didn't simply have the opportunity. Right. Uh, to work in the archives, you know, they were, they were desperately uh, cash-strapped too. They didn't have time for research, most of them, although there were some, uh, a handful of very good historians in Spain, but working in very difficult circumstances. So in a sense, I, I was enormously privileged that I had, a f as soon as I started research, I really found I had a field open to myself on a century which had been neglected by Spanish historians because it was seen traditionally as a century of decline after mm -hmm. the great age of Charles V and Philip II. Philip II died in 1598, and then it seemed to be downhill all the way. And uh, I felt there must be something here, and especially with all the brilliance of Spanish civilization in that period, the great painters like uh, Velázquez, Zubaran, uh, and so on, and the marvelous literature, uh, so that it was a very rich field, potentially, uh, both for somebody interested in what happens when a great power appears to reach its peak and then starts going downhill, or appears to start going downhill, and the conjunction of that with uh, an enormous artistic 
efflorescence at the time when the economy seemed to be on the skids. So all these, all these questions sort of came into my mind at a very early stage, and they were big questions, right. not easy to handle. And I devoted you know, the next 40 years of my life to exploring some of them. Was there any pushback at all? You mentioned, uh, obviously, the time of Franco and the, and the people who, many, many people who you knew who, who had participated in the Spanish Civil War. Was there any, were there any negative comments thrown your way? Were there any, was there a sense that, well, you really shouldn't be this involved in Spain until it changes politically, even if you're studying 17th century? We, we, we don't want to have anything, we, not only do we not want to have anything to do with that, but it, it really isn't politically correct, even though those doubtless weren't the words used at the time, to be, to be so involved in, in Spain. Did you get any negative comments at all thrown your way from academics or your peers or, or anybody in the professional world? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. It's thought to be a slightly exotic subject because there's this uh, Anglo-American image, a stereotype of Spain, you know, uh, as a, it's the, the famous Spain of the black legend, a country which throughout its existence has been dominated by superstition, fatalism, uh, idleness, uh, uh, and so on, the Inquisition. So all these uh, elements of the black legend uh, were in some sense an obstacle, I think, to many, many Anglo-American historians really being interested in concentrating on the history of Spain. Uh, but I didn't feel that. On the other hand, uh, my research subject actually was on 17th century Catalonia, which mm -hmm. revolted against the government of Olivares in Madrid in 1640, a famous revolt. And um, uh, I do remember, I, I devoted my research to working out the reasons for the revolt of the Catalans in 1640 against the Madrid government. And I do remember that one of my, one of my tutors at Cambridge, my, one of my undergraduate tutors, uh, said it was a very rum subject I'd chosen. Uh, so that, um, uh, you know, who knows, it may have seemed a, a rather uh, offbeat uh, to some people. But it turned out to be extremely, extremely rich because it took me into so many fields which were not just of Hispanic or Catalan interest, but of wider interest, you know, about the relation, about the reasons for revolts. And there was a great deal of interest at that moment in revolutions in mid-17th century Europe. So it, it played into what was being thought about generally at that time by uh, uh, many historians. And early modern European and early modern history in general, history of the 16th and 17th centuries, was extremely, extremely lively in that period. I mean, it was a great age for early modernists, uh, particularly because of the influence of the, the great French historian Fernand Brodel in Paris, whom I went to visit on before I uh, really arrived in Spain uh, to do my research. And uh, he'd written this, this famous book on the Mediterranean in the age of Philip II. And uh, that set a lot of people, historians, thinking about the role of society, the role of the economy, the role of finance, mm. and so on in political history. So that all these things were buzzing around in my mind. But he was quite discouraging it. about your own work. He was discouraging because he thought that uh, uh, what might look to him rather like a biographical approach, which wasn't really my intention, uh, this really wouldn't be the way forward. He was much more interested, uh, or thought it much more valuable, if I studied Spanish finances in this period. Mm. Well, in fact, I did get deep into Spanish finances in the end, but I didn't want to, I mean, I, I had no technical skills in that area, and it's a pretty dicey area to work on. You know, figures in the 16th, 17th century are always somewhat suspect. And um, although there are very interesting things to say about the relation between governments and bankers in this period, 
I felt it wasn't me, and that wasn't my, 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 great, my great interest. So I, I went in other directions, and I was terribly interested, for reasons I don't quite understand, in the whole question of uh, centralization and uh, the reactions of autonomous regions. I think it was part of this great debate about uh, 17th century revolts and revolutions that was going on at the time, the general crisis of the 17th century, as it was called. Mm -hmm. And um, it is absolutely central to the history of Spain. I mean, if you look now uh, at you know, these demands in Catalonia for independence, which were for, uh, 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 hitting the headlines today, um, I was in on something very interesting, an early stage of this, and I was dealing with the whole question of a nationalist historiography which had written up the 1640 revolt in a certain way, uh, right from the 19th century onwards. And so, in a sense, I was challenging a whole historical tradition, because the more I worked in the archives, the less convincing this romantic account of the revolt seemed to me to be. Right. And, and, and so that brings up a, 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 a very interesting notion as the, as the historian, as the objective observer. And mm -hmm. of course, there are nationalistic historians, there are regional historians, there are people who are motivated to explore history for, for political reasons, for sociological reasons. Uh, and, but we would like to believe that, um, that a good history is written by somebody who doesn't have an ax to grind, who, who, who is reasonably objective, who can see both sides of the story, whatever mm -hmm. cliche one wants to invoke. Mm -hmm. um, and you were so well, obviously so well chosen uh, it, it, from an abstract sense to be able to look at, at this question of the Catalonian revolt from 1640, not having any Catalonian affiliation, not having any Castilian affiliation, mm -hmm. but being someone who is just trying to get a deeper understanding of, of, of what's actually going on. Oh, obviously, coming in as a historian, it's the same problem for anthropologists, incidentally. I right. think. If you're studying a society other than your own, obviously you, you want to observe it as closely as you can, as objectively as you can, and yet obviously you also want to be uh, assimilated within that society uh, in order to understand it better. And this is, I think, the dilemma that faces every historian working on a foreign uh, sub-theme and every anthropologist working in a, uh, an alien society. And uh, my particular dilemma when I went to Catalonia and spent my time in the archives there in 1954 to 5 and 55 to 6, was that I felt deeply the sufferings of the Catalans. Right. You know, the language was prohibited uh, sure. as an official medium, couldn't be taught in the schools and so on. One of the first things I did was to learn Catalan, and the more obviously I got to know the Catalan society of the 1950s, the more I, I was distressed by the degree of repression by the Franco regime. Uh, which was trying to eliminate a whole, uh, a whole cultural world and a whole national identity, effectively. And so in that sense, I felt extremely sympathetic uh, to the Catalans at that moment. And yet at the same time, I came up against this dilemma that what I thought they'd written, what they'd written about their, their revolt in the 1640s and indeed about their history from then onwards, uh, was terribly skewed, that it was... Uh, a constant attempt to see themselves as uh, being victimized by their more powerful neighbors, the Castilians. And so I had to find a balance, as it were, uh, between uh, 
my sympathies, my innate sympathies for an oppressed people, and my realization that, in my view, they'd got their history uh, badly flawed. And that was a dilemma. But um, I think I, I say in my book, History in the Making, uh, I, I tell this story about how I went walking with the most famous Catalan historian of the old school, a man called Ferranz Oldevila, and I asked him to sing for me the song sung by the rebels in 1640, which became and still is the Catalan national anthem. Yeah. And um, as we went walking in, in the hills, and he, I, he, I got him to sing and the tears ran down his cheeks. And I think for the first time I realized what it was to be an, an oppressed nationality. Um, you know, I'd been brought up as a free Englishman, and this was something totally alien to my experience. And it was, I think it had a deep impact on me. And yet at the same time, uh, I had to tell this man and others that what I was finding was not in line with what they'd been telling uh, generations uh, of Catalans. And this was awkward. I was lucky in that there was a, a, a Catalan professor in Barcelona University, a man called Vicenç Vives, who was a great historian of the younger generation, who'd also realized the importance of demythologizing right. uh, the history of Catalonia because he wanted to equip a new generation for the post-Franco period. And he thought this sense of victimhood uh, was not going to help the Catalans solve their own problems and the problems of Spain uh, once Franco died. And so I naturally gravitated into his orbit and that of his own students. And I think possibly at points I may have been driven too, too far by the passion to demythologize and I don't know if that came out in the book or not, but I did try and keep a balance. And of course, I spent a lot of time working on that thesis and then turning it into a book, uh, The Revolt of the Catalans. And I'd like to think it's a fairly objective uh, statement. It's the best I could do in the circumstances. What was the response of the, the older historian, the one who had tears running down his cheeks when he was... Uh, what, how did he respond to you? Well, he was distressed, but he picked up the points that... Were, supported his own thesis from my book. As any good academic work. work. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that, um, you know, that's what happens actually. You tend to find bits used by people for their particular reasons, just as Catalan politicians have picked up some points right. and ignored the others. But was he, was he emotionally distraught? Did, did he have a sense that that, uh, not to be overly grandiose, but mm. obviously this is something that, that resonated very deeply with him and was a... Was a was I think it hurt, it hurt him. Yeah. I think it hurt him. I knew it would. You know, you have to sort of go as the chips fall. You can't do anything else if you're a historian and want to... You know, the whole point of a historian is to reconstruct as imaginatively as you can, with all the insights you can, on the basis of the available evidence and see if you can give a, a picture that's as true as, it, as is possible, uh, given all those preconditions. Right. And it's a difficult job, and it's a constant challenge to all of us all the time, whatever we're writing about. You mention in your book, and I, I, I looked through it with a fine-tooth comb to try to find something, um, to find a general statement and, um, about how history should be done or how one should proceed, and, and uh, I was so often very frustrated. Uh, because you refrain admirably from making grand synthetic judgments about anything. But you did say one thing that stuck out in my mind, or you wrote one thing. And you said that historians should be just as concerned with the present 
uh, as, they, as they are with the past. So what did you mean by that? Well, I think if you're a historian and you're trying to be objective, you know that pure objectivity is impossible because you're a product of your own society. And for that reason, I think you've got to be able to situate yourself in your own cultural, national, international world and your own century in order to understand better what are likely to be the limits and the prejudices which will affect your historical work. So you have one foot in the past and one in the present, as I see it. And you've got to be alive to both. And so I take a, I mean, I take a great interest in current events generally, mm -hmm. obviously those particularly in Spain. Uh, but I think it's absolutely crucial uh, that you should know that because it does precondition you. And that future historians will no doubt write about this period of Spanish history or any other history uh, with totally different preconceptions and interests. So that you find that one generation of historians, uh, if we take British history for instance, the tradition in 19th and 20th century British history up to the 1950s or 60s, shall we say, uh, the syllabuses in universities, for instance, were heavily emphasized British constitutional history because, you know, we, we were the supreme example of parliamentary government and the rule of law. So everything was focused on that. Now, if you look at books on British history, nobody takes any interest in British <laughs> constitutional history anymore, <laughs> you know, because that, that's now lost. Yeah. And the whole emphasis from the 1950s and 60s onwards has been on social and economic history right. in particular. So they write about the Industrial Revolution, but not about the Glorious Revolution. Right. Interesting. And, and, and there's also this, there's a, there's a sense of perspective, being aware of the, of the biases and the tendencies to evaluate things mm -hmm. in the time that one happens to live in. But there's also a personal link. I mean, this, this business of historians should be just as concerned with the present as they should be with the past came in your book right after an anecdote when you were locked in, the, in this archive. Uh, when you were doing some research by, with some canons of, uh, in, a, in a particular yes. place near the Pyrenees and, and, yes, and, and, right. and so forth. So um, it, there's this invocation that you seem to be giving to future historians and to current students of history mm -hmm. that you should, uh, this is my reading of it, so correct me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but my reading is um, don't just stay in your ivory tower, don't just mm -hmm. be detached, go out, meet the people, have experiences, and those will in fact often trigger your historical researchers. That they will give you different perspectives on, on, on history and, and insofar as it relates to the present and also just give you serendipitous occasions to, to interact and to actually be a better scholar. Is that, is that a fair yeah, statement? Absolutely. I mean, the, I, I do give an example in my book, in fact, in fact of uh, when I asked the, the way in the streets of Barcelona to a traffic policeman, and I asked in Catalan without thinking, right. and he immediately said, speak the language of the empire right. in, in, in Castilian. And I'd been reading a, a, a pamphlet of the 1630s the week before, uh, <laughs> which said, these people don't speak the language of the empire. And I felt at that moment, you know, that three centuries uh, <laughs> just not happened Telescoped. at all. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> telescope. And that brought home to me the interaction uh, of past and present, which I think is a constant. Uh, every historian should be aware of this. I mean, historians really, uh, the supreme quality they need is curiosity, I think. And you've got to be curious about people, about other societies and so on, if you're really uh, to make, uh, make sense of a very incoherent past. And all the past, past is incoherent. Historians are simply trying to impose 
some sort of order, which inevitably is our own order, on a, a random series of events. Right. And, and of course, being humans, being curious humans, or hopefully curious yeah. humans, um, there are natural personal motivations. You speculated yourself at some point as to whether or not, uh, you had mentioned this notion of decline, as to, as to whether or not the, the, the decline perceived or real in Spain from 1630, 1640, whatever, um, was structurally similar or linked to the feeling that one had in post-World War II Britain with the decline of empire and, and the sense of a country on the, on the decline. It also seems to me that uh, you're stressing throughout your book a constant sense of guidance for the future historian to be involved in, um, in his current circumstances because it might lead to a widening of perspective. So maybe I'm making a leap here, yeah. but so mm -hmm. again, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so you had talked about when you were later on when you were at the Institute for Advanced Study uh, in Princeton and, and your experiences about being in America and your experiences of looking at things from that, that general perspective. And that, it seemed to me, there were, there were two things about that. Uh, one directly led you to a broader perspective on comparing uh, the Spanish Empire in the Americas to the British Empire in the Americas, which led to further research, which, which I'm imagining might not have happened or might not have happened in the same way had you not been in America and looking at things from that particular perspective. Yeah. And then the, the serendipity of being close to an art historian uh, who was an expert on, on the world of Spanish art and culture in a, in a time similar to the one that you were doing research on, which led to, led yeah. to another work. But again, this constant invitation, uh, or rather invocation of get out in the world, yes, be a scholar, yes, be studying, but get out yeah. in the world and, and see what's happening around you mm -hmm. and perhaps try to incorporate that and any directions that that might entail in your, in your research. Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial. And that's how a historian... You know, you have to constantly revivify yourself, as it were, and you can do it partly by working further in the same area, but you want to be alive to the other opportunities that are around. And I think chance, contingencies, serendipity, as you say, uh, play a, a big part in this. I mean, it was uh, living in Princeton, it, it was extraordinary and a piece of tremendous luck that the greatest expert on Velazquez in the United States lived uh, just one road away from me. And... Uh, we made friends early on and then wondered whether we could put together our two interests and write a book on a, a pleasure palace built for, uh, by Olivares uh, for Philip IV in the 1630s, the Palace of the Buen Retiro in Madrid. And uh, we realized that by joining our particular skills and um, his knowledge of art and art objects, my knowledge of the historical and political background, uh, we might write a sort of book that neither of us could have written individually. And uh, so we joined forces to write this book, A Palace for a King, which was enormous fun to do. It's the only sort of collaborative work I've done. On the whole, I'm in favour not of teamwork, but of individuals, because I think uh, otherwise um, so many historical anthologies, volumes of, uh, by many authors, uh, you tend to lose a sense of one dominant approach and point of view. And I think the fact we became great friends and were not frightened of criticizing each other, right. that on the whole made it work. And the book was seen as a pioneering book by many art historians as well as by historians. 
So in a sense, we achieve very much what we'd hoped to achieve by combining forces, but it's a very tricky operation. You have to be absolutely frank with your colleague. Yes. I, I want to go to to a sense of flexibility, which mm -hmm. also seems to be, we haven't talked very much about that, but mm -hmm. you mentioned in your book uh, this, to me, very romantic notion of, uh, of going to the Prado, seeing this painting by, and I, so I'm going to call him Velasquez instead of Velasquez, because yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't do that, do that quite as well as you can, uh, to put it mildly. But you see this, you see this beautiful portrait, um, and you find it compelling. Yeah. And, and, you, and this with all sorts of other motivations, some of which you've enunciated, many of which I'm sure you haven't, have led you to, to this, this idea that this is going to be your, your research, mm -hmm. main area of research uh, as, as a young, as a young uh, uh, future researcher. And, and so you sit down to dig down into this, the, the, the files and, and the, the archives of this Count Duke Olivares, mm -hmm. who apparently had been making all sorts of annotations and, and had built uh, for all of his work um, and, and had, in fact, constructed this, this library of all of his, of, of all of his documents for mm -hmm. after, after his death. And, and then you find um, that, that all of these documents have been burned. And it seems as if your, your entire life's mm -hmm. work is, or, or future life's work is, is going to be yeah. down the drain. But, um, but then you do something which to me is very interesting. You, 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 you shift, and this leads you to Catalonia, and this leads you into, mm -hmm. in, into another direction. But it's that sense of flexibility, uh, on the one hand being flexible enough to be able to make that shift, which I'd like you to describe in more detail, but also this, the, the sense of tenacity, that notwithstanding the fact that it looks mm -hmm. like you've hit a dead end, and this wonderful topic that you're captivated by, that, that you're willing to spend years to try to unravel, looks like it's not going to go anywhere. You're, you're flexible enough to go in a different direction, but you're tenacious enough to really keep, keep digging. And in fact, you spent much of your career digging deeper and deeper and deeper to try to get an understanding of this man who you might think at the very beginning, there's no way of knowing anything about him. Yeah, yeah well, it was an absolutely shattering moment for a, a young research student in the, about the, the third month of his time in Spain and in the, the archives suddenly to discover uh, nobody had ever told me, nobody had ever written that this archive uh, had been destroyed in a fire in the late 18th century in the Palace of the Dukes of Alba in Madrid. I just happened to pick up a, a recent book by the current Duke of Alba on the family, family, paper, uh, family possessions in which uh, he said this. And I thought, my goodness, you know, what am I to do? I can't go back to England. Uh, and then I thought, well, uh, uh, is there any way of salvaging this? And there were two big revolts in Spain in 1640. One was the revolt of Catalonia in the summer of 1640, and the other was the revolt of Portugal, which recovered its independence from Spain as a result of its re revolt in December of 1640. So I thought to myself, you know, I either go east to Barcelona or west to Lisbon. Right. And by the grace of God, uh, I went east to Barcelona because the papers about the Portuguese revolt have never been found. There have been earthquakes. It was, it was basically a conspiracy, and it's Probable there wasn't much on paper. Well, you might have found it. You might have found that. Might have found, <laughs> I might have found something, but nobody has since, it right. should Whereas uh, the Catalan archives turned out to be enormously rich. But it was really, in a sense, what I was doing. And it, I, th I think flexibility is essential, I and mean, especially for graduate students. You know, this happens so often that you find a subject is, is not doable in some way, and you have to do some quick thinking and see if you can rescue something or otherwise abandon it. And I decided, you know, I knew. I knew 
that there was a good archive in Barcelona and I thought there was a fair chance of finding material which would enable me to look at the same problem from a totally different point of view, which was the point of view of the periphery right. and not the central government. Right. And that, in some ways, I think was probably more rewarding than if I'd seen everything from the top down, because right. it got me into another society, it got me into the whole question of, uh, of social issues and local politics and so on, in a way that I think wouldn't have happened if I'd simply concentrated on Olivares' papers and the papers of the Council of State in that period. So there is an enormous element of luck, I think it has to be said in this, but I would also hope that the determination to go on, because you think there's a great subject here somewhere, yeah. uh, you know, if you can possibly do it, press on, would be my advice to, to younger historians. And you had to, by going to Catalonia, and by opting for that direction rather than Lisbon, mm -hmm. um, you had to learn, as you mentioned, you had to learn Catalan, which is a completely different language. You, didn't, it, you also mentioned in your book that, that uh, while you were a student of modern languages, you weren't actually a student of Spanish. No. And so you first had to learn Spanish, and yeah. then you had to learn Catalan. That, that strikes me as a formidable obstacle. Clearly, you have a gift for languages. But uh, well, I must have had a gift, I suppose, a good ear, presumably. And, um, yeah, I mean, I started you know, teaching myself Spanish in my first years of research. Well, I'd, I'd been to Spain for a summer course in my third year as an undergraduate for a two-week course in Santiago de Compostela. So I'd got some of the basics by then, and then I, I started reading. And um, I don't think I had any classes other than that uh, course in Santiago de Compostela. And then when I got to Barcelona and realized it was absolutely essential to learn Catalan, both for daily living and for reading my documents, I, I then put an advertisement in the, uh, the major Catalan newspaper, the Vanguardia, uh, saying young Englishman wants to live with a Catalan family to learn Catalan. And I was absolutely deluged with replies. I got about 100 <laughs> replies and went tra traipsing around lots of houses. And I found a, a sympathetic family who agreed. They said they would simply try to talk Catalan in Catalan to me from the beginning. And I, I picked it up. It's not that difficult as a language. It's a sort of mixture of Provencal and Spanish, actually. Okay. So that, um, uh, in a sense, you've got some Spanish. It's true that a lot of Castilians say they can't understand it. And, but uh, on the whole, uh, you know, it's, it's not a terribly difficult language to has learn. It, has it changed a lot? Is 1640 Catalan it's very, very different similar. than... It's very similar, actually. Really? Very similar. But I, I do remember being invited uh, to an Easter lunch by a Catalan family in Girona. And um, I wrote a thank you letter afterwards, and they said it was written in perfect 17th century Catalan. <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> that probably doesn't happen every day. Has Spanish, by the way, has Spanish changed uh, if you look at 17th century Castilian? It's as very similar. It's, it's very similar, yeah. Okay. Well, that's convenient anyway. It is, that's, it is convenient, yes. And the, on the whole, the handwriting, the official handwriting was very good in the 16th, 17th century. It's a secretarial hand. Uh, Olivari's hand was terrible but not as bad as Philip II's hands, which was hand which is worse, which has defeated a lot of historians. So maybe the fact that the archives burned down wasn't such a bad thing. I mean, if they were uh, all, it was all a tragedy. of his. <laughs> tragedy from my point of view. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to back up a little bit and talk about some general themes. So it's fascinating to me when I read about um, what historians were interested in, in the 50s and in the 60s. And of course, there was a lot of Marxist ideology and you talk about being recruited in, I think it's 58 or something, to the board of past and present. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why you were chosen, or so you aver, was because you were, you wanted to, there was some sense of, of wanting to have a non-Marxist uh, 
who was associated with this, and this was the days of the general crisis and so forth. This seems very, very different in terms of overall themes and proclivities to the way that his, from my ignorant perspective, for the way that history is being done now. But maybe it's not. Maybe the words have just changed or the, or, or the, the titles have switched around. Is there a real difference in the, his, in the, the, the establishment, the, the history establishment in the 50s and 60s and 70s compared to the way it is today? Well, history, like everything else, goes by fashions. Right. And uh, Marxist and Marxism history was very dominant in the post-war period. Uh, and then, I think partly under the influence of anthropologists, by the 1970s, late 60s, 70s, um, uh, you got the, the cultural turn very much. And um, I, I was greatly influenced, I should say, and by Clifford Goertz, who was a great friend of mine mm -hmm. at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And I began to realize, for instance, the importance of, of sim studying symbols and the way in which messages were conveyed through symbols in other periods and other societies. So that cultural history became very dominant uh, in, the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, also the influence of the philosophers and of phil historians with a deep knowledge of philosophy like Quentin Skinner, for instance, the, the so-called linguistic turn and so on. Uh, all this uh, changed the balance of history. And then you get, uh, as always happens with historians, and I think with other fields, you get the revisionists coming in. Right. People who realize what's being left out right. in the previous paradigm and try and put it back. So we got, we got back, in some respects, to political history. And biography began to recover, which had been extremely unfashionable mm. uh, for many years. And less so in this country, it's true to say, than in other parts of uh, Western, Western societies. But um, so that uh, it, it's, all, it's all really a question of what's left out, I think. And you should be alert, I think, to the dominant uh, themes uh, in the historiography of your own period. And I would say, refuse to go with the fashion. Uh, stay with what you think is important to you and what you consider important. The wheel will turn full circle in the end. <laughs> And you, and you seem to have experimented in so many different different ways. I mean, you, you've you've written a biography. You've written uh, you've you've done comparative studies. You've done comparative biographical studies mm -hmm. uh, when when you look at Olivares and Richelieu and and, mm -hmm. and compare the two of them. You've uh, you've done I I would think well I, perhaps this isn't uh, isn't the right word, but I would think that Imperial Spain would be more of a standard synthetic history of a of, yeah. of a particular period. Mm -hmm. Um, do you, and you've done uh, artistic and cultural history, you've collaborated on, on, on this particular book with someone in this reconstruction of, uh, of a palace, so you've looked at things from all different perspectives. Is, is there a sense now when you look back at your career that you had a particular knack for doing one, having one type of historical approach than another, that you really felt that you were best suited to doing more biographical type of history, for example, or, or, or comparative history, or comparative large-scale history of different empires, or, or, or anything like that. Is there a sense that you thought, yes, this was my real true métier, this was the thing that I was best at? I wanted to experiment with different types of history, but I was, in a sense, driven into comparative history in many ways by the fact that I was working on Spain. An Anglo-American audience for works on Spain was minimal, really. And there wasn't a great interest. So I always had to relate it, what was happening in Spain, to what was happening in other parts of the world. 
and particularly other parts of Europe at that time. So that, uh, in a sense, I was both comparing and connecting, and I think the two are very important, comparison and connection, mm -hmm. uh, I see as, uh, as fundamental to the role of historian. Otherwise, you land up with what you might call exceptionalism, which I think is one of the great dangers uh, of all histories. You know, there's an American exceptionalism that we are unique. There's a British exceptionalism, our island story and so on. Uh, and when you start looking at contemporary societies, uh, you see similar phenomena or fairly similar phenomena at work. So it's absolutely essential, I think, again, to situate your own country, your own society, uh, into this wider context. So for almost from the very beginning, because I was working on Spain and trying to make my work interesting and accessible to a non-Hispanic audience, and that's why I, mean, I wrote a textbook because there wasn't one in Imperial right. Spain, an up-to-date textbook on Spanish history of this period. And uh, that really forced me to think comparatively, and I've been thinking comparatively ever since as a result, because otherwise you just get uh, isolated in your ghetto, right. and then you become increasingly uh, an antiquarian in many respects, uh, and the, the work becomes fossilized, and history must be alive if it's to be anything, and it must be made accessible. And the other thing I've always felt the importance of doing was to try and write accessibly. I spent a lot of time uh, on my prose, writing and rewriting, to see how it sounds uh, particularly. Uh, so I'm actually I tend you to read speak. It? You read it I out. tend to speak to my computer very often right. to see how the, the sentences fall, uh, you know, and whether they'll be picked up and the resonances will be picked up by those who see them on the printed page. And so I, I've always felt in, in training my graduate students, I've always been very keen on their writing in the most accessible way and the most literate way possible. And I think that's absolutely crucial. And there are too many historians who are good historians but can't write. And if you can't write, you're not communicating. What's the point of being a historian if you can't communicate? Mm. There was this notion that if you're writing a biography of someone, uh, there are some natural dangers. You have the, 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 the scylla of, of, of identifying too closely mm -hmm. with, with, your, with your subject and, and perhaps losing focus. And the Charybdis perhaps of, 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 of looking at it from uh, a sense of, of, of too much remove, a sense of, uh, of understanding obviously what's happened afterwards and, and what other people have said about this particular person mm -hmm. and so forth. So this sense of, of, the, of constantly trying to balance things, mm -hmm. to do an accurate portrayal, but don't do it in such a navel-gazing, obsessively detailed way about somebody who was the most important person in the world for you because mm -hmm. you've just spent three years working on them, right. but recognize their overall impact and structure and role in society. Yes, I mean, I. I became very conscious of the dangers because sometimes I would lie, lie awake in bed at night, you know, putting myself in Olivares' shoes and thinking, now, how, how would I have dealt with the problem of the revolt of the Netherlands and, <laughs> and the war with the Dutch at that moment in the, in, in the 1620s and 30s? Would I have signed a truce right. or not? So what would you have done, just out of curiosity? Knowing what happened afterwards, yes. <laughs> but, but then realizing you know, the reasons, his motivations, you realize why he didn't. So you are constantly, it is a juggling game actually, a juggling act all the time. Right. Uh, but it's, it is very important uh, to do that. And I th it struck me in writing a biography, the other, the other problem, I mean, the, the, the danger of excessive sympathy, or the danger, as you suggest, of excessive remoteness, because as, 
the literature that may have accumulated or whatever it may be, or share distance in time. Uh, but there's also, I think, uh, a need, well, to understand that, I mean, one of the dangers of biography is that you see everything through the eyes of your particular subject. And clearly other people didn't. And so you've got to be aware, uh, really, of alternative points of view around him. You have to study the elite in which he operates uh, and see the, what the opposition is saying at any moment. So all those elements also come into play. And the other thing I think in writing a biography is you don't quite know when to stop. And I decided that there's something that I call in my own mind the surprise test. When you cease to be surprised by anything this man says, uh, you think, well, perhaps you know him. You know him as much <laughs> as you're likely to know him. At that point, perhaps you should start writing. And I, I reached a point where I knew how he was going to react. Huh. And it was very curious. So how long did that, the, 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 like, did that oh, About take? 10, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> but by that time, I felt I got to write this book. There was another technique that stood out. Technique is, is, is perhaps not the right word, but there was, there was something that you wrote uh, which was somewhat counterintuitive to me. You, you talk about this notion of, of the dog who doesn't bark, the Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. uh, idea. We, and so what one imagines, what are historians doing? Well, they're interpreting events. Mm -hmm. This happened, that happened, and they're trying to come up with reasons or plausible interpretations or some points of comparisons for why this happened in this particular way and it could have happened mm -hmm. in another way and how it interacted with other things that were happening at the time. But of course, there were lots of things that didn't happen. And, 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 uh, and an interesting approach is to look and say, well, gosh, it, it happened this way over there and this way over there, but it all, it, one would have imagined that it would have, the same thing would have happened over here, but it didn't. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, uh, that, was, uh, that, was, that was news to me. I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to actually approach things, that you can sometimes, sometimes look at, at non-events mm -hmm. just as closely as you can actually look at events. Mm -hmm. The trouble about non-events is that they're less well documented on the whole. <laughs> <laughs> and there are so many of them. <laughs> but if we look, for instance, uh, uh, an example would be uh, revolutions and revolts. Uh, I worked on the revolt of the Catalans where the whole society blew up. But the next door neighbour, Valencia, didn't revolt. Right. And I got a graduate student uh, in Cambridge. I suggested to him why don't you take the dog that doesn't bark in the night, Valencia, and see if you can find reasons why there wasn't a revolt in 1640-41 by the Valencians. And that also proved to be a, a very uh, promising theme. Uh, in spite of the difficulty of studying non-revolution, right. you begin to find things about how the society was connected internally, how it was connected with the government in Madrid, and he began to work out answers to why the Valencians remained pacific when their next-door neighbours uh, blew up in revolt. So why did they? Just having just a uh, rough because uh, because uh, on the whole there were more the patronage system inside the society seemed to work better. The links with Madrid were better for some reason, uh, and uh, a lot depended on the personalities of the period. But the sort of clientage and, and patronage systems led to a. a a willingness at least to compromise uh, under pressure from Madrid and the Valencians managed to get their way in certain respects. 
And, uh, and of course, once the Catalans had revolted, uh, the government in Madrid was much more careful with the other societies uh, in the peninsula. So that all this played its, played its part. Um, it's, it's complex. Uh, a, a study, it's more complex to study a non-revolution than a revolution. <laughs> but so uh, my hat off to him for, for writing a book, this man called Jim Casey, who came incidentally from Northern Ireland. And I thought it would be interesting at the time of the Troubles, right. I thought it would be interesting for him, particularly I suggested this as sure, a possible. Because thing. he had his heart in the non-revolutionary place, exactly. presumably. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yes. We talked a little bit, and you talked quite a bit in your, in your book about this notion of decline. Yes. Um, it's interesting to me because there is this sense that, uh, yes, Spain entered a decline at, at a certain particular time, and this decline was, was regarded as irrevocable like so many other declines yeah. are. But uh, one of the things which I found interesting was that, that even well before it was firmly established that they were in decline, there's a sense of, uh, well, the government went broke over here, the government went broke over here, there was a crisis over here, there was a crisis over there. Mm -hmm. So this, this retrospective, smooth, monotonic increase to domination followed by equally mm -hmm. monotonic and irrevocable decline mm -hmm. seems like such uh, a trite and superficial way to actually be looking at these things that mm -hmm. only has the benefit of, uh, of hindsight. And, and it seems... Which is not to say, of course, that the, the eventual story is wrong. What do I know? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that in broad brushstrokes, yeah. there, there must be a lot to it. Um, but the brushstrokes seem broader and broader the more one actually mm -hmm. looks at this. I think I was very much dominated by the traditional narrative of the story of the decline of Spain. And uh, so that I, for many years, I think I did see it in those terms. Uh, which was the sort of standard one, and then historians would play around with the various most important factors causing decline, you know, and they'd list various things like the Inquisition or the expulsion of the Moriscos or whatever it may have been. And, but uh, the breakthrough, I think, came for me uh, as I read the literature produced in the early 17th century by this group of people now known as the Arbitristas, who were worried about what was going on in Castilian society in particular, and began writing their own nostrums as to what, what mm. should be done. And they were speaking in terms of the decline of their own society. And at that point, I began to realize uh, how far decline itself was a perception of contemporaries, who'd set it into an enormous grand narrative of world history, essentially, whereas all empires, from the Babylonian, the Roman, and now the Spanish, go up and then down. Right. And, so, and then I found Olivares himself uh, being conscious uh, or thinking in terms of our society is in decline, uh, we're going the same way as the Romans and so on. Can we stop this? Can we, can we halt the process of decline? And uh, there were various ways. He was looking both at the past and he was looking at contemporary societies, particularly the Dutch and to some extent the British, who seemed to be going ahead technologically and so on. So in a sense, he's, he sees himself as struggling against the whole problem of decline. And I wrote an article uh, for Past and Present called Self-Perception and Decline in Early 17th Century Spain, in which I tried to show how far the whole notion of decline depends on the goals that societies set for themselves. And different elements, different goals predominate in different periods of, 
European or world history. In the 19th century, uh, societies were thinking in terms of industrialization, and the British by the 1870s were worried that the Germans were being more successful right. as an industrial society. I think the 20th century criterion has become uh, football and sport. You know, you measure yourself by your success in the Olympics. So the Spanish are no longer on the decline, it seems. Well, from that point of view, <laughs> and that's been a great boost to their, their ego at a moment of Great Depression, actually. Right. Uh, so that um, uh, I think very much it does depend on the nature of uh, contemporary views of what is important for a society at any given moment. But in terms of Spain, um, there were obvious problems in the sense of uh, France came out on top uh, in the wars of the 1630s and 40s, and some of that, I think, was chance. Uh, and that fact, you know, that it loses political ranking at the same time as the economy is in serious distress. And, but Spanish historians in general, um, because they lost their empire, and the final loss of the empire came in 1898 with the Spanish-American War, so that the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, Spanish historians were all trying to explain the decline of their country. From the 17th century onwards, they saw it as a constant downward trajectory. And uh, they tended to explain it in psychological terms, in essentialist terms of something about the Spanish psyche, the Spanish psychology, which was unfitted uh, to the modern world. And that was a predominant theme when I was doing my research in Spain. Hmm. Uh, I began to realize the flaws in it. And then, of course, when you get the transition to democracy after the death of Franco in 1975, you get an enormous success story for 25, 30 years. And it's very interesting how that also has its impact on the newer generation of historians, which are thinking much less have been thinking much less in terms of decline and failure right. than of the successes of the Spanish right. past, which is an interesting example of how this interplay between past and present and present and past, which I think is fundamental to an under historical understanding. If we could resurrect Olivares right now, yeah. um, whom you know so well and who rarely surprises you any longer, <laughs> but if we could resurrect him and he would be sitting here and, and he would be asked, you would ask him, um, is Spain in, in irrevocable decline in 1640? Let's say 1640, what, 1643? Yeah, he, he falls from power in 43. Right, yeah. so right yeah. before he falls from power. Yeah. Yeah. Would, he, would he have a, a psychological sense that he had done his best to fight, to minimize the irrevocable decline? Or do you think he would think, no, it's not necessarily irrevocable, or we've had some difficulties, mm -hmm. but we're going, to necessarily, we're going to bounce back? Would he be more optimistic, do you think? Well, I think you have to bear in mind all the time the providentialist religious view uh, of Spaniards and indeed Europeans of that generation that disasters are the result of our sins. So that if you read Philip IV's correspondence in the years after the fall of Barrivares, and he corresponds a great deal uh, with a famous nun called Sor Maria de Agreda, and he constantly says, it's my sins, it's my sins, yeah. You know, and this, this is why we've lost this battle, etc., etc. And Olivares felt the same. Hmm. So that, uh, in a sense, uh, everything is put back, and God can change the situation in a moment. Uh, if you purify your lives, if you purify the society, close the brothels, cut, uh, sh shut down the theatres, or whatever it may be, 
then possibly God will speak for his people again. And you think you are a chosen nation, but things have gone wrong and it's a result of our sins. Yes. So that in that sense, I mean, it was a, a melancholy approach, I suppose, from our point of view. But I think that's how he would respond. Nothing is irre irrevocable. Right, which is not melancholic in the overall. I mean, there is a possibility, there is a possibility of, of rising again if we purify ourselves. But it depends ourselves. on God and it depends on our reactions. I'd like to speak a little bit about the future. Yeah. Um, so we're living in this information-flooded age. Mm -hmm. uh, no longer does a, a, a young or older research historian have to go to this wonderful fortress in Simancas mm -hmm. where, you, where you spent so much time and many other places and have all these experiences. And no longer does one have to struggle tooth and nail to try to get a hold of uh, uh, presumably one has to struggle to some extent for some archive material, and, yeah. and I'd like you to comment on that. But as a general rule, there is a plethora of material which is out there at the touch yeah. of a button that one can access yeah. without going anywhere. Um, and presumably there are all sorts of uh, very positive, unequivocally positive aspects mm. of this. But I would imagine there are also all sorts of negative aspects yeah. of this too. Uh, what, are, what are your views on, tell me a little bit more about what you think that some of the negative aspects might be and, and how this should be best managed. Yes. Well, in some ways, as you say, it is, it is wonderful to have everything uh, so much digitized with the archives, etc. You sit there and here in my house in Oxford and I can read documents from Seville or Simancas on the screen. But uh, I have a feeling that that experience that I had of Simancas, for instance, was formative. Uh, actually to touch a document, to read the document, to take notes, the document in pen and ink, or you weren't allowed pen and ink, but uh, pencil at least, <laughs> in, in the archive, uh, to read through your notes in the evening. Uh, there's nothing quite like it, and I have a feeling that with this mass of documents coming onto a screen, first of all, you don't get the, you don't get the sense of the period in quite the same way. It really does make a difference if you can see the brown ink. If you sit there as I sometimes sat there with a duster beside me, um, mopping up the, the crumbling bits of the document, because you know some of these bits of paper are, sure. are very early. And uh, I'm probably the first and the last person to have read that document. So <laughs> who knows, somebody wants to check my footnotes a generation hence may have some problem with one or two of the documents I consulted and, and cited. Uh, so that, that's a real negative, I think. And the other, thing, the other negative, I would say, is the enormous amount of information. Uh, that it's, it's really much more difficult to discriminate now. And you see, you can, you, by using, by selecting keywords in documents, you, you spin through thousands of documents, picking out declines, say, should we say. Right. And then, very often, you don't read the document, you don't soak yourself in it, you lose the context. And that's when we get these superficial histories, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a real danger. And I think it's terribly important that uh, research students should be exposed to real documents on paper of the period they're consulting. And uh, nothing, I think, uh, can improve on that. But it is wonderful. I mean, I, I've looked at documents where uh, on screen where you can see, you know, the ink is spread or whatever it is, and they can now wipe off uh, the, the, the ink stains, and you can read the document underneath, which you can't oh, do. Yeah. They've done that for some of the documents in the archive of the Indies in Seville. Huh. About 10% of that is now um, online. 
but, uh, that, that is amazing, and that's a sort of technical advance which is of enormous help. But now you go to Seville, and if a document has been digitized, you're not allowed to see the document. You have to read it in the archive on screen. And so I think, there's no I point in going to begin with. Why really? go? Right. You know, but this is tragic, I think. And I think it's going to cut historians off from the reality of the past, which is around them and should be around them as they, as they cite documents. Well, you have, there, there are all these vivid passages in your, in, in your book, History in the Making, where you, where you talk about yourself going to Simancas and, and, and the heat and knocking on the, the castle yeah. gate or the fortress gate yeah. and, and having these documents being given to you wrapped up in a bow, yeah. I think. They're, they're That's really, right, the red ribbons, <laughs> right. <and you> carefully <laughs> untie the ribbon. So you can, you can imagine this actually happening. You can imagine yeah. this, this, this person sitting here in the, in the heat of the... Yeah. Uh, and it's it, terribly exciting. I mean, you don't know. Uh, especially the documents were not well catalogued in Simancas. You just had one or two indications of what the general bundle of documents might be about. But you can turn up anything, and it was frightfully exciting. Because, right. you know, you'd suddenly find an absolute treasure. You'd go through Lagajo, bundle after bundle, uh, uh, and, and uh, drive the porters mad as they staggered <laughs> to and fro with these great bundles of documents. And then you'd suddenly find a gold mine in the middle of in the middle of a bundle. You know, you never know what you're going to find the next day. So uh, historical research is, a, is an extraordinary mixture of tedium uh, with flashes of sudden excitement, I think. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you can spend months not finding things uh, or wading through a lot of material which seems irrelevant. Sometimes, of course, material you, you regret not taking notes. Uh, suddenly, you see in retrospect, my goodness, why didn't I take a note on that document mm -hmm. while I was there? Mm -hmm. But uh, by and large, it's a cur this curious mixture of bad days and wonderful days. And it's a marvelous, it's, it's great fun being a historian. I mean, I've enormously enjoyed my career as a historian uh, because it is uh, so full of interest. You're, I mean, many of my best friends are 17th century friends. Indeed. So in a sense, I live in two worlds simultaneously. And it's great to enrich, you enrich your life experience in that way. Right. Moving towards the future, let's talk a little bit about globalization and globalized history, because um, it certainly seems that it's more, it's more of a dominant approach when one looks at history today to be putting things in a global context rather than a European context, yeah. a continental context, an American context, mm -hmm. or, or even an Atlantic context. One, one looks at the rise and falls of empires uh, that, that, that presumably that in the past we may not have necessarily felt the need to put in a wider global context and now we put this in, oh these were the centuries when the Europeans were on the mm -hmm. ascendant, yeah. had the ascendancy yeah. and so forth. A, a couple of things, a couple of questions that I have about that. Is that maybe too large sometimes? Does one get a sense that, that you, you can't be constantly looking at things within a global context or feeling that you're looking at things within a global context because you lose the forest through the trees? We may all call ourselves citizens of the earth or at some point mm -hmm. do, but, but, but many of us live very locally. And, and is, that, is there a worry that by, uh, by constantly feeling the, the obligation to, to be more global in approach, that this is just another fashion which will, in fact, lead to some sense of dilution. So let me ask you that first. Is that, or is that, is that just a silly no, thing? No, I, mean, I think global history is enormously challenging and, and people are still not aware, fully conscious of how it can be well done. And the linguistic problems to begin with, the archival problems, are enormous. And so uh, I think uh, a lot of global history tends to be the history of globalization, which 
tends also to be the history of Europeanization because it's the Europeans who link the continents effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, so that um, that which is not quite genuinely global history. Uh, on the other hand, I've just been I'm just reading now uh, a book by one of my former research students, Geoffrey Parker, who's put the 17th century European crisis into a global context. And he's done it through terms of uh, world climate and the little ice age of the 17th century. Hmm. So he, and he's been to the archi archives in Japan, in China, in Goa, uh, and so on. And uh, I mean, it's an extraordinarily brave attempt to uh, show how all these societies, whether it's Ming China, or the Spain of Philip IV, uh, or the British in North America and the North American colonies, uh, are affected by uh, climatic conditions of a rather similar type. And the, the weather gets entirely uh, erratic and oscillating and fluctuating in going towards extremes from the 1620s to the 1660s and 70s. And he links these to the revolts, for instance, that spread across Europe and the, the, four, the world, the fall of, of the Ming Dynasty, etc. And um, I mean, it's, it's an extremely ambitious book. I'm only halfway through, so I can't say whether I think it succeeds. I was, I was going to ask you whether, whether, what, what, whether you were the slightest it, bit convinced it, it that there's something there. Well, there's something there, yes. There the problem, the danger, of course, with that sort of climatic, world climatic approach is the danger of determinism. You know, that everything comes back to the fact that the rivers froze or whatever it may be in, the, in, the, in 1626, or there were, there were great floods in the 1640s, uh, or, or the locusts came uh, and, the, and the harvest failed. Is, is, this, is, is, is one of the main claims, and we're not supposed to be yeah. talking about this book, but you brought it up, so, uh, so I'm curious. Is, is, is one of the main claims that there was some causal link exactly as you're describing, that there, were, there was some uh, climactic event that, that thus impinged on harvests or something which, which yes, had an economic absolutely. point? Or, or was it more of a sense that uh, the climate was going all over the place and people became much more fearful and their states mm -hmm. of mind became more sensitive to apocalyptic reasoning or, or, or something like that? Was it more the, the, the former than the, than well, the latter or some combination? As of far as I've got, he concentrates more on the hunger, the disruption and so on. Okay. Uh, than on that, though he does talk about messianic movements, particularly which could be one response okay. to disastrous situations. Okay, but anyway, that's one yeah. example. I interrupted you, but that's yeah. one example of that's a, one of example a of deliberately a global, att deliberate attempt. Right. Deliberate. Other attempts that have been made are to go round the world, looking at what's happening in, every, in, in say 2030 parts of the world in say a chosen year, like 1687 or whatever it may be. Sounds incredibly ambitious. Which is very ambitious. And again, it requires a knowledge of Chinese history and Brazilian <laughs> history and so on. Right. So, and, you, and again, linguistic uh, problems and problems of dominating the literature are enormous. So I have a feeling that uh, the future of global history, I mean, I think it's important we should think globally and think in, in larger groupings than the national ones. Mm. I mean, I'm very interested in Atlantic history, linking the two sides of the Atlantic. Mm which is more manageable, but again is very difficult because you've got to incorporate African societies with the slave trade and so on. Uh, but I think that um, the, the way forward is probably, while concentrating on the area you know best and the literature, which, the literature you know best, but always to think in wider terms, whether regional, uh, Atlantic or transatlantic or global depending as to you know, whether it helps the argument, whether it gives you new insights, 
uh, and, and views of, for understanding our own society. I think, again, it's this question of comparing, connecting, which are at the heart of the historical enterprise, to my mind. And, and you can look at this almost as a team, as a team sport, right? I mean, in, in terms of the meta level, if I were to say there, there is a historian of 18th century Spain and a historian of 18th century France and a historian of 18th century America and 18th century Africa, and now I'm going to try to write a global uh, history or a historical, com historically comparative approach, I'm not myself going to do all of that. I'm going to assume, I'm going to assume their arguments l are loosely correct and try to contrast mm -hmm. and compare them. That seems less ambitious than obviously trying to do it all myself, but on the other hand, I am naturally dependent on, on all these other, uh, other people who are who Absolutely, are doing yes. I mean, that's in a sense what I had to do with my empires of the Atlantic world, that um, I wasn't doing archival research on British America in the way I'd done archival research on Spanish America and Spain. So in a sense, one is dependent uh, on other historians. Uh, you go to them looking for certain things which they may or may not provide you with, uh, but that, that's inevitable, I think, uh, once you move outside your own comfort area. Right. Um, a couple of last questions, if, I'm, if I may uh, hold you up, which is, um, first of all, it's, it's, it's a somewhat banal and cliche question, so I'm somewhat embarrassed to ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It, if you... If you, do you have any principal regrets of anything that you've done if you look back at your historical career, your professional career? Is there anything that you would have done differently? Is there anything that you, uh, or, or, or not, not so much that you're embarrassed by necessarily, but you there, there were things that you could have and perhaps should have followed up on. There are things that you wished you would have had more courage to have done, this sort of thing. Is there anything that, that, that falls along those lines? I think I should have loved to have learned Ottoman Turkish and looked at uh, the Ottoman Empire in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, Ranka, the great German historian, uh, wrote on the basis of Venetian ambassadors' reports uh, a comparative study of the Ottoman and Spanish empires in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, which I'm quite inadequate as a basis just to use ambassadorial reports, but it's a wonderful subject. and. Uh, Ottoman Turkish would have spent, taken several years of my life. I think the calligraphy is very difficult and so on. But they, it's the great theme that one day I hope somebody will, will write up. I mean, historians are more aware now, I think, uh, of the possibilities there than perhaps they were an earlier generation. And perhaps the next generation, somebody will be brave enough to undertake that. And even you'll see in, in Geoffrey Parker's book, I've just been talking about global crisis. I mean, he does have a, an interesting section on what's going on, on the crises in the Ottoman Empire right. uh, in that period and how these sultans are being murdered at that moment mm. as part of this general, general crisis. So that's, that's one area. I think I mean, I've done the best I can do, uh, given the society from which I come, the society to which I went, and the uh, evidence available. And I don't really have serious regrets there, I think. I, I, I think, you know, I, I found it a very interesting trajectory. And... Um, uh, I'm enormously glad to have had the opportunities. I, mean, I belong to a very privileged generation in which research students, I think, did have more opportunities. There was more financing around. There were more university jobs. And now it's much harder road for histor young historians to take. It's really very difficult to get jobs. Uh, it's very difficult to get research funding. 
the pressures uh, are great to complete your thesis quickly so you mm. don't have time to mm. learn a foreign language and work in foreign archives. Mm. And I was enormously uh, privileged to have those opportunities in the 1950s, which alas, for the time being, have gone. Is there more pressure to be doing something academically tactical, uh, relevant, applicable, all these words that, that, mm -hmm. that are being thrown around with such gay abandon? Is, uh, is there is there more pressure on the, the, the students of history today to be thinking more concretely about their career rather than following their passions? Well, I'm sure they are, and uh, the pressure to publish now is enormous. So you've got to get your thesis out quickly. There are too many half-baked books coming out as a result of this, so they're in print, so they can, so they can put in for, for jobs successfully. And this is a disaster. Uh, I think, because you need time to mature books. I mean, I took 15 years writing my Olivares, basically, I suppose. And, I, you know, the, the present generation doesn't have that opportunity. And the other disaster is, I mean, you say about thinking tactically. I mean, if I was a young British historian today, um, I would want to learn a foreign language and work on a foreign country. But you need time to learn that language. And it was very interesting that uh, 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 one of my last Oxford students, who is a German, um, put in for a job in early modern European history at University of Liverpool. And of the six shortlisted candidates, five were not were continental Europeans, hmm. because British British historians just don't have the languages anymore, hmm. and this is a disaster. Is that recognised? Is that recognised? Yes, there's an awareness in the in the British Academy now, and what can be done about language teaching and so on. But it's become very serious because you know, if you get funding for only three years, the odds are you're going to need a fourth year probably to learn up a language and sure. go to a foreign archive. Sure. One of one of the advantages that, that history seems to have as a profession um, over, say, the mathematical sciences, yeah. is there is. Uh, there's a clear sense in the mathematical sciences that one's opportunity for uh, great discoveries and, and meaningful contribution is fairly short and largely limited to, to one's youth. Now, I think this is a... Not this entirely is a, true. It's not it? entirely true. Yeah. This is a stereotype, and there are many exceptions to that yeah. rule. But in broad terms, there is something to it. I, I, think, I think most people will agree. I certainly believe that. It does not mean that there isn't a constructive role to play by people who, are, uh, who, who have long research careers uh, behind them. Mm -hmm. It does not mean uh, that there have not been great discoveries by people in their senior years, mm -hmm. but, uh, but in large terms, it, it, there seems to be something to it, broad brush. Whereas when I, when I look at, at a field like history, or when I look at a field like law, judge, this sort of thing, mm -hmm. this, this, a field which requires this enormous amount of experience, distillation of knowledge, perspective, awareness, self-awareness, all of these things. It doesn't require a great deal of self-awareness to be a fantastic mathematician. It's always nice to have self-awareness, but it, I don't think it's essential to the, to the pursuit. I would argue that it, it probably has a, a fair amount uh, to do with being, being a, a good historian. Um, so one of the advantages is, is that it's, it's a field where you can continue to make meaningful uh, impact mm -hmm. through, uh, as long as you are engaged and, and, and willing to do so. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it is. I would hope that we're getting better and better as right. we grow older. Right. And 
you know, some of the best historians done their best work in their 80s. Right. And so that, you know, the, from that point of view, it, it, simply because you have, as you say, uh, a great deal of experience, both of the world, one hopes, and also of documents and of your period and of the literature, uh, you feel increasingly in command very often, although that's dangerous too. You sure. must be aware, <laughs> you must be aware <laughs> of the pitfalls uh, which we can all fall into. But by and large, yes, I would think that um, maturity does help a historian. Although I still think that, I mean, I couldn't write a book like Imperial Spain now because I was so young and brash that I was able to commit, make generalizations which uh, would make me squirm nowadays, actually. So that, uh, and there's something to be said for a young man's book. Sure. Sure, but I mean, uh, you, you should, you can indulge yourself with uh, all of your accomplishments. And my God, you have a knighthood, man. I mean, you should, uh, uh, you, you, you should consider yourself infallible. Or I guess that that doesn't work for knighthoods. Uh, anyway. That's the beginning of total disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I regard myself as a highly fallible historian. Yeah, well, uh, good for you. And clearly, you do. And I was being a little bit facetious, but. Uh, I have I have two more questions. Mm -hmm. So it, this leads directly to my my penultimate question, which is uh, which is what are you working on now? Well, I've only just published History in the Making, sure, and I've got a lot of um, lectures and articles and so on to write, and I want to take time now and think, you know, is there somewhere I can make a real contribution at this stage? I don't want to get back deeply into the archives, uh, but perhaps I, by connecting things in some way. Um, I might do something about the, the culture of the Spanish monarchy right across from Italy to Peru, you know, as a cultural, oh, cool. as a cultural history of some sort. Uh, I'm trying to think whether that would be feasible and, um, you know, be ambitious, but, but quite exciting. I'd like to get more into Italian history, say, uh, as well, and uh, the history of the Spanish Netherlands, Mexico and Peru always interested me. Uh, so that uh, you know, that's one possible way, or I might think of something totally different. But it does take time to absorb the literature, uh, to see the possibilities, and so on. So I'm keeping an open mind at present. That flexible mind you <laughs> talked about as being so essential, which I entirely agree about. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, is there anything I haven't asked? Is there anything that we should, uh, we've had a, for my part, I've had a, a wonderful uh, discussion with you. I've enjoyed it immensely, but perhaps I've, we've missed something. We've uh, elided to some key points. We, we've, we've trivialized something, uh, or at least I have, perhaps. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there anything you'd like to, to add? Well, the conversation's been great fun. I've enjoyed it, too. Um, one thing we didn't, I suppose, quite explore as much as we might have was the question of the uh, interrelation of the decline of Spain with what was happening in the Britain of the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And again, illustrating this interplay between past and present, uh, which I find so fascinating. Um, I say in, in History in the Making how what I wrote about Spain began to be picked up by British journalists and then by politi British politicians, uh, who people like Roy Jenkins say there's a danger we're going the way of Spain. So that, that it, it seems to be an interesting example of how what a historian writes doesn't necessarily remain within, enclosed within the historical world, but gets into the world of contemporary politics and begins to inform a debate, whether for good or ill, I don't know. But it, it's this constant interrelation which seems to me a, a totally absorbing and uh, 
uh, and very exciting because it, it at once directs the historian and directs contemporary generations in certain, in certain ways. Uh, and that seems to me very intriguing. I'm worried that we've enter, we're entering an ahistorical world. And, uh, you know, there's a real danger that sheer ignorance of the past uh, will lead to short-term attempts at solutions by politicians. And I think that if you get politicians who know, have some sense of the past, get their own problems into perspective, that's very important. But, you know, there's so many. And although there's a sort of fascination with history as a kind of theme park, uh, I think there's not enough understanding of what we might call the complexities and the nuances of the past. And I think, you know, one of the tasks of the serious historian is to complicate what seems simple and to simplify at the same time what seems complicated, but to show that there are alternative options that have, could have been taken in the past and weren't taken. I mean, one of the themes that's fascinated me, I began to realise the importance of these construct states, which we now call composite monarchies in 16th, 17th century Europe, uh, a state like Spain uh, or Britain, with Scotland and Ireland and so on. And, uh, and what became Austro-Hungary, the, the origin of the Holy Roman Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire that succeeded it. And, you know, the whole trend in the 19th and 20th centuries has been towards, in European history, has been the concept of the nation-state as the culmination of three centuries, four centuries of European history. And they've knocked out the possibility of sort of large-scale federal states like the, you know, bring back the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was one of the cries for a moment, uh, when the, wall, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the road's not taken. And I think historians should point out those roads as well as the roads that were taken. So there have been options in the past which may provide possible solutions for the future. And that, again, I think uh, is a, an important contribution that historians can make and why it's so important that historians should help to uh, generate in the coming generation, uh, a, a sense of the past and that everything is not short term, that there are long term backgrounds to everything that's happening and just step back for a moment and think before you start producing uh, uh, off the cuff solutions uh, to today's problems. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Linda Cauley, Richard Janko, Maria Mavrudi, and Jay Rubenstein. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.